Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of For the Love of Duluth podcast. My name is Tom Jamison. I am a former lawyer who moved to Duluth about seven years ago after I bought a business here called Lake Superior Medical Equipment, hanging up my lawyer hat after 25 years. Joining me as co-host of this podcast is a lifelong Duluthian, a registered nurse, and the marketing director for Lake Superior Medical Equipment, Yvonne Myers. So why did we start a podcast called For the Love of Duluth? Because we love this town and the interesting people, places, and experiences that we continue to discover here. If you already live in Duluth, we hope this podcast will teach you things you never knew before about the place we call home. If you are planning to visit Duluth, we hope this podcast can act as a tour guide of sorts, giving you an inside look at the remarkable people, places, and things that make up our unique city. Duluth is a star of the show, and our guests help it shine even brighter. We hope you love this podcast as much as we love the city it's named for. This is Season 4 of For the Love of Duluth. The city of Duluth is many things, diverse, vibrant, and absolutely beautiful, to say the least. It is also booming with people from all over the country venturing here to make the Zenith City their home, thanks in part to a Harvard professor dubbing the term climate-proof Duluth back in 2019. No matter the reason, one could hardly blame a person for packing up and heading our way. After all, Duluth is a small city with a big town feel, sitting upon glorious Lake Superior and boasting a community full of booming businesses and passionate folk. Don't believe us? Put any episode of For the Love of Duluth on shuffle. Despite the marvel that is the glorious city, which this podcast honors, Duluth is not without its pitfalls and challenges that are typical for urban areas, including poverty, lack of affordable housing, and a downtown area that could use a little revitalization. Fortunately, there are several local organizations who have made it their mission to tackle some of these issues. One of the most notable is the Ordeen Foundation. The Ordeen Foundation has a long and celebrated history since its official formation 90 years ago in December of 1933. Its mission? To help locals in need by crafting and funding long-term solutions to systemic poverty in Duluth. For the past five decades alone, the Ordeen Foundation has given more than $55 million in grants to local nonprofits, making Duluth a little bit stronger and a little bit finer with each day that passes. The roots of the Ordeen Foundation date back to 1882, when the couple behind the name, Albert and Louise Ordeen, moved to Duluth, and like so many others, fell in love with the city. Despite big opportunities outside of it, the couple chose to stay in Duluth, and thus a long-lasting legacy was born, one that is still improving the lives of Duluthians nearly a century later. Albert was so passionate about his vision for the city that he detailed it in his will and left his fortune to help address issues related to poverty in Duluth, without regard to gender, race, or religion. At the helm of this incredible organization is a name most Duluthians know well. Don Ness, once called one of the most popular mayors in America, today he works as the executive director of the Ordeen Foundation, leading and executing its mission to help those in poverty make a better life for themselves, something he also did during his eight-year tenure as the mayor of Duluth. He's led the foundation to new heights since he joined the team seven years ago and channels his passion for the city into the role he has today. It's fitting for Don to lead one of Duluth's premier philanthropic foundations, 
as Don Ness just might be the Duluthiest Duluthian ever. He grew up in Duluth's hillside neighborhood during the 70s and 80s, a place so ingrained in his soul that he went on to name his book after it, but we'll get to that later. A self-described shy and awkward kid with a stutter, he discovered his love for politics while attending the University of Minnesota, Duluth. The rest is a story for the history books, a tale that includes a gig as the campaign manager for Congressman Jim Obistar and a history-making election to the Duluth City Council at the age of 25, becoming the second youngest person to ever win a seat on the council. It turns out that this was just the beginning. In 2008, at the age of 33, his political dreams were fully realized when he became the 38th mayor of Duluth, beating out 11 other Democratic candidates and becoming so beloved he ran unopposed for a second term, ultimately stepping down to pursue new dreams, one of which he is living and breathing today. It's been a long and exciting journey, and today Don Ness is here to take us through it in his own words. Don, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Tom, and uh, thanks for having me, and Yvonne, it's, it's nice to see you guys, and I have to say that I am such a big fan of your podcast, and uh, I listen to as many episodes as I can, and I'm learning a lot about Duluth, and uh, and so it's just a, a real gift to our community that you guys are making this commitment, and it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. It is truly a labor of love, and uh, we hope people are going to learn a lot of things about, uh, about you when they listen to this podcast. So um, let's go ahead and start. Let's start with your background. We always like to hear about the journey. You were raised in Hillside, grew up in the Hillside uh, neighborhood of Duluth. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, I just uh, celebrated my 50th uh, birthday uh, earlier this month. And uh, that very first day was kind of a Duluth uh, episode, a Duluth story in itself. My parents uh, were very young. My mom was uh, 20. My dad was 22. And it was uh, January 8th. And they lived out in uh, Lakewood Township in a a little shack that had no running water. uh, And they had an outhouse in the back and a little, you know, pump uh, well. uh, And it was a January 8th and the air temperature is still the very coldest January 8th on record in Duluth. The air temperature was 31 below zero. Are you kidding? And my mom went into labor. And so they, it was a long drive into, to St. Luke's uh, in town, about a half hour drive, about halfway down to the hospital. Uh, dad realized that he left the dog out. Uh, our little mutt, honey, the dog was left outside on this 30 below day. So oh he goodness. rushed to the hospital, dropped my mom off at the, at the emergency room, and then had to drive all the way back to Lakewood Township to get the dog back in. And so that's a great, but <laughs> The dog was okay. The dog was okay. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I didn't come until uh, several hours later. So dad was able to get back in time. Uh, wow. What, that, that is a great story and just such a quintessential Duluth story. But I did not realize, and I read your book. I've read your book, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, I didn't, I don't think that. That, that story was not in there. Was in there. That's really that's really fascinating. An outhouse in 31 below weather. Yeah, I mean wow. it was. You know they they were kind of a. I mean my, my parents are my heroes and they really kind of led me on the path to, to public service. And so uh, ultimately we uh, they bought a house in the hillside, a small three bedroom traditional. I was the oldest of, of four boys. My dad was a pastor of a of a small church uh, in town called the Community Christian Fellowship, and it was kind of a progressive evangelical. Uh, church. Uh, my mom worked at the Battered Women's Shelter. My dad also uh, spent some time as chaplain up at Northwood Children's Home. So, you know, public service and giving back to to uh, 
community was always a, a big part of, of my upbringing. And, you know, you, your compass starts forming early in life, right? And so that you were already sort of sensing what your direction might be because you saw your parents leading this example. Yeah, a little a little bit. And, and, and yet, you know, as a teenager, you know, you look at how hard I, I saw how hard my parents were working and how much they were giving to others and especially people in need and, and both the emotional toll that that could take and their time. And then, you know, we took a look around and said we were struggling financially as a family ourselves, you know, and and so there's a little bit as a teenager where you, you, you kind of question, you know, the those choices. And, right. and it's like, well, that's not the path that I want to go down. I'm going to go, uh, you know, a, a different route. Uh, but then ultimately you do come, come around and say, you know, those values were were kind of deeply ingrained and, and really have been the, you know, the the North Star for for efforts uh, after that. Yeah, well, it's 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 uh, it's a, it's a really cool upbringing. Your your parents, were they from Duluth originally? So my mom grew up in Arlington, uh, Minnesota, which is southwest of the Twin Cities in a little farming town. So she's Irish Catholic. And my dad uh, um, grew up, uh, were born in Duluth and then kind of traveled the, the state as his dad uh, worked at, uh, at MnDOT, came back uh, to Duluth, uh, graduated from Duluth Central and then uh, St. Scholastica. Uh, but they were, it was a little bit of controversy because, you know, dad was Lutheran and, and mom was Irish Catholic. It's a mixed and, marriage. Yeah. <laughs> so they actually eloped and, and at a very young age and then had me 11 months later. So it was a bit of a, wow. <laughs> yeah, a fun story there. Interesting. Okay. So, so you grew up, you're, you, you enjoyed the hillside neighborhood. I mean, there's obviously, there's just tons of stuff to do as a kid. It sounded like you were on your bike a lot, riding around to various places. And yeah, I loved growing up in the hillside and I was a sports kid, you know, right. and so it was really kind of sports that were, you know, as a painfully shy kid and, and kind of socially awkward. Uh, sports was really kind of the avenue for me to kind of gain some confidence and kind of learn those leadership skills. And, you know, back in uh, in the, the 80s, it was kind of like on a Saturday morning, you go up to Central Field and then you see who shows up and what sort of equipment they bring. And sometimes it was baseball and sometimes it was football and sometimes it was basketball. And you just kind of did that. And, you know, one of the things that I learned at an early age is I hated the arguments that would take place on the fields, right? And so you'd spend half your time arguing, was a fair ball, was a foul ball? And I kind of learned a tactic that I would make calls against my own team. You know, if I saw it, I'd say, you know what, that that call went against right. us. And what that allowed, you know, I gained some credibility with the other kids so that if I made the call, then we could stop arguing and get back to playing. <laughs> oh, wow. That, so you developed that skill early on. Right. And that, you know, yeah. it does translate well into politics. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. So where did you go to high school? Duluth Central. You went to Central. And where was Central at the time? Was it up on the hill? It was up on the hill. Okay. That's right. You know, it's so funny. So I moved here really in December, uh, in uh, March, well, spring of 2015. It amazed me. The school was closed by then. It mm -hmm. amazed me. I thought, well, why wouldn't every kid in the world want to go to school there? Because you got this incredible view of Superior. But I obviously they they had other reasons to close it well it was it was tragic you know i was the fourth generation in my family to to graduate from central and, and central played a really important role within our community and it was kind of the uh it was the middle ground is uh between the, the east and west and and so when you take central out of that mix it, it kind of uh, uh makes that that divide east and west a, a little bit more uh um you know stark in, in right. some ways um but it was it was a beautiful school uh, 
uh, you know, driving up uh, the, this kind of curving hill on, on the hillside and, and looking over the lake and seeing the sunrise, it was just gorgeous. When did, when did it close? Uh, 2011, I believe, was okay. the last year. So that was, it closed while you were mayor then? Yep, that's okay. right. We don't, we don't want to jump and it in. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't my decision. It was oh, the right. school no, board no. decision. I right. was very unhappy with uh, with that, that choice. And, you know, but uh, having very old school buildings, and this is the red plan, uh, you know, that um, the facilities plan that they implemented. And, well, we, we don't need to. <laughs> no, school choices yeah. are always really, really difficult. Right. And they're always difficult. Someone's got to make them. No one's going to be happy. That's not an easy decision, whoever has to make it. So you went to Central, graduated from Central. When did you graduate? In 1992. And actually, there is a, an interesting story about um, during my senior year, uh, the, the school board uh, attempted to close Central at that time. And I was president of the uh, student council at the time. Of course you were. <laughs> and you I, know, was also, okay. I was that's also... Okay. That's funny. That also wasn't in your book. Yeah, that's so right. That's right. Funny. Okay. So, and uh, the story is that uh, I was on the basketball team as well. And uh, we had a... Uh, we played in the regional semifinals against Duluth East, who had like destroyed us twice uh, before earlier in the year. And uh, we we won uh, kind of a, you know, a, a big game. It was the biggest game of my high school career and everybody was excited and then uh, woke up the next morning and, and went downstairs to read the newspaper to see what was the coverage of the game was and the first paragraph in uh, in the story was ironically on the night that the school board voted to close Central as a high school Duluth Central kind of had this big victory against Duluth East so I didn't even know that that was oh. happening and uh, and so I come to school after the biggest basketball game of my uh, my life and everybody's depressed everybody's yeah. just devastated that uh, the, the school board voted. So we ended up going to the state basketball tournament uh, that year uh, and winning, uh, taking third place uh, on a last minute uh, shot by my friend uh, Eric Reinertsen, who is now the uh, uh, girls basketball coach at, at Denfeld and a, a great, uh, great friend. But what was neat is that both our run to the state basketball tournament, as well as kind of organizing at a community level and with the students that, that we kind of made the case for keeping sense open and the school board did reverse its decision and kept it open for another nine years yeah. until they came back and, and ultimately closed it. And well, that's pretty good that you gave it, uh, you got it another nine years. Yeah. That's and, pretty good. And in, in many ways that that experience kind of demonstrated to me that at, at a local level in politics, you can kind of, uh, you know, make your voice heard and you can, can you know, an affect real change. Yeah. Yeah. So 92, you graduated and do you go right to UMD? Yes. Uh, um, so I um, got a local scholarship called the Hunt uh, Scholarship and uh, decided to, to save some money uh, by living at home. And I was working uh, at the gas station, the Pike Lake Amico, uh, <laughs> and doing midnights uh, uh, there. And um, and then went to, to UMD in the fall of 92. 92. Okay. And so you started at UMD. And, and what was your major? Well, I was a, a business student and, and actually my 
my concentration was uh, management information sciences. So as MIS, it was kind of, and at the time uh, we were doing programming in these old language, mainframe languages like COBOL and Pascal and, you know, some of those things. And actually I was the very last student to graduate with that, uh, with that degree because they shut down the program because they realized like, hey, the internet is here and it's all new uh, languages. And so uh, they, they shut uh, down that, that program. And it's ultimately I had uh, both the MIS as well as an econ uh, uh, focus on my business degree. Well, interesting, interesting. You know, it's it's funny that you say that about these uh, sort of classes that taught coding in these these old mainframe languages. I still think it gave people who learned that. I'm not a computer guy. I, I, you could throw a bunch of code at me and I just <laughs> wouldn't know what to do with it. But I think it gives you an advantage because at some level that still forms a kind of basic building blocks of, of what's going on in computing today. Oh, right? no question. It, you know, the, the interesting thing is that COBOL is still a language that many of our like legacy systems run on COBOL. And all of the programming that was done during the Y2K uh, crisis, you right. know, when they had to go in and, and make all those fixes, that was COBOL. So if I would have stuck with that, I actually could have had a, a career and being one of the few remaining folks that actually know how to, you know how to do code it. in COBOL. Remember, we all thought the world was going to that was so that was so weird it got all blown out of what the issue was that every computer had an internal clock and the clock didn't wouldn't know what to do well it was the the years yeah the the years were a two-digit year uh and so you know they programmed a lot of those things back in the 60s and 70s and say well we don't have to worry about you know when it clicks over to 2000 and so they had to kind of change the programming to allow for a four-digit year well, fortunately, the world didn't end. <laughs> that's right. They got ahead yeah, of it somewhere. That. So that's not, not uh, wouldn't be the first thing that's gotten sort of uh, blown out of proportion. In any event, you um, you graduated. So I was on the five-year plan. Okay. Uh, well, that's, <laughs> hey, I was on the seven-year plan at the University of Minnesota. So so that's nothing. And ultimately, it was, you know, I spent a lot of my time, uh, you know, both working my way through college. I was working 25 hours a week at, the, uh, at various gas stations. Uh, and then I also got involved with student government. I was a student body president and involved with the, the university senate. And that was really the first time that I thought, oh, this this type of approach to public service. And I loved sitting in committee meetings and, and talking about academic policy. And it's like, okay, this is something that, you know, that I can, uh, that I can do that I'm, that I'm good at and I enjoy. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. I, well, obviously you must know Dan Hartman. Of course. Yeah. So he's, he kind of, it's kind of a familiar with refrain because he had the same experience. In fact, he, he, I think he did a lot to get Amsoil Arena. That's right. When he was still a student. Yep, that was the yeah. first time that I got to work with Dan is is when he was a student, and and so he and I were both uh, student body president, and so you <laughs> of know, course. of course, oh <laughs> my god. So we had those yeah. uh, those conversations, and Dan's doing a great job. Okay, well, you, okay, so you were student council president at at Central. You were student body president at UMD. Gosh, I wonder where this career is going to lead. <laughs> so, uh, so, okay. So now um, you're getting involved in politics. You're kind of seeing that that could be an interesting field. So you're graduating, let's call it 1997, maybe yep. something like that. And so, so what's kind of your first gig out of, out of college? My first gig was working for uh, First Witness, which is a child abuse resource center uh, in Duluth. Uh, and 
and I was kind of the front desk person uh, there uh, and I loved that that work and it was very much in line with you know the work that my mom was doing at the Better Women's Shelter and uh, and then shortly thereafter Congressman Jim Oberstar uh, was looking for a campaign manager and I was 23 years old and didn't really know much about much but uh, at that time uh, Jim was winning his campaigns with like 75 percent of the vote so he was like oh this kid is is uh, energetic and enthusiastic and really cheap and so they hired me and I was uh, his campaign manager for for, end up being 10 years wow that's that's remarkable and uh, this is in your book but not everyone who's listening to the podcast has read your book (laughs) so talk was it your first day on the job yeah it was so tell it so it was my first fourth of July uh, working for Jim and uh, we would go up to the Iron Range and and do uh, essentially six uh, parades in over the course of 24 hours uh, wow. so we do two uh, Aurora and Gilbert on uh, January 3rd and then we do four uh, parades on July 4th and so I had uh, dropped Jim off on on January uh, 3rd and didn't have a place to stay I hadn't uh, reserved a hotel room and so I'm kind of driving all the <laughs> all around the the Iron Range looking for a place to stay finally found the Android Hotel in Hibbing uh, or Virginia rather uh, and got in about 2 a.m. and then uh, tried to set my alarm but I set it to p.m. so I woke up late <laughs> dr- you know had to drive all the way across the range to pick up Jim I'm late getting there we drive you know need to go from uh, Chisholm back to uh, Eveleth for the first parade that started at 9 a.m. and got pulled over by a uh, by a state trooper uh, and you know so I'm sitting there with the congressman in the car I've only been working for him for a couple of months and I'm looking over and, and trying to get the the trooper to see Jim <laughs> sitting <laughs> next to me and saying uh you know we're we need to get to the parade uh but he gave gave me a ticket and now we're late uh getting through the entire thing and you know uh you know going from parade to parade and always behind and just kind of feeling like like I'm I'm just making mistake after mistake we get done with uh the third parade and only had one left and I locked the keys in the trunk of the car and that was before cell phones and so we had to pull out the phone book to try to call people on the 4th of July to come in, you know, some tow truck to, to get the, the keys out of the trunk of the car. And it was a blazing hot day. Jim is sweating uh, in the shade. And so anyways, it, everything went wrong. I was sure that I was going to be fired. Uh, and on uh, the drive back to his house in Chisholm, I, I started to apologize. And he said, you know, Donnie, uh, I just wanted you to know that while things didn't go your way today, uh, I'm proud of you because he didn't lose your head. And I just like the generosity. This is one right. of the most powerful people in the, the country. Right. And somebody who I had just ruined his 4th of July <laughs> from all the mistakes that I made as a 23-year-old kid. And he had the generosity to care about my feelings. And uh, so when we got to his house, we got out of the car. I grabbed his, his bags. And uh, he gives me one of these famous Jim Oberstar hugs. And uh, and actually then waited on the front steps of, of his, his door and gave me a big wave and said happy 4th of July and I drove back to Duluth and I was like he is one of the most remarkable people that I've ever met and at the time you know I, I was thinking maybe I'd work for Jim for 
for a, you know a year, maybe one election cycle, and then move on to do something else. And it was because he was such a mentor and somebody that I had such deep and profound respect for that I ended up staying uh, with him for, for 10 years. Wow. So you were his campaign manager then because at some point you run for city council. So you're when you're running for city council, you're also working as his campaign manager? Yes. Yeah. He allowed me to do that. Uh, you know, the city elections are, are on odd years and my and the uh, gym's elections oh, were on even sense. years. Okay. So <laughs> it was like one election every every year. But uh, and he was very supportive uh, of, you know, me kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of pursuing my own political career. So let's well. let's talk about your decision to run for city council and how, how that took place. Yeah, you know, when I graduated from UMD, um, I, I looked around and I was really discouraged that the advice being given to myself and my friends I went to high school and college was leave Duluth, go down to the big city, get your five years of experience, and then when you're ready to settle down and, and have a family, then maybe you can move to Duluth. And it was like, that's horrible advice for the future of our community because the moment that kids are being sent away they don't come back right you know they get ingrained in in with their employer or with the communities that that they move to uh, so I was really discouraged about that and I was you know thinking of, of accepting that same advice of, of moving away and then maybe someday coming back but the the thing that happened for me that kept me in town is that I found this amazing music scene and it was in the late 90s early 2000s uh, in Duluth there was a scene that was kind of around the, the North Shore Theater. And uh, Homegrown Music Festival came out of that scene. And, you know, Lowe and all of Al Sparhawk's uh, bands were were kind of, you know, emerging and, and, and supporting uh, everybody else. And um, it was just this such a authentic and, um, you know, supportive uh, scene that was very entrepreneurial in, in their spirit. And so that kind of got me like, yep, this is the place that I want to be. I want to make a difference. And we want to make Duluth kind of a cool and interesting place for these young people to thrive. Wow, interesting. So music had a lot to do with with your decision to stay in Duluth. All right, Don, we have to uh, take a quick break right now because we're out of time for our first segment. So we're going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Lake Superior Medical Equipment, and then we will be right back. Lake Superior Medical Equipment is proud to announce some big news. They have opened two brand new locations. Nearly eight months after the fire destroyed their Duluth store and warehouse, the team at Lake Superior Medical Equipment has bounced back bigger and better than ever with a new storefront at... 4730 Mike Calaleo Drive in Duluth. The new store is located in the lower level of the Bullion Center with more parking and a great new layout. That's not all. Lake Superior Medical Equipment has also moved their store in Cloquet. Customers can now shop at their brand new location at 907 Stanley Avenue, just a few doors down from their old store. Something that hasn't changed? The amazing customer service you have come to expect from Lake Superior Medical Equipment. Our friendly staff is ready and waiting to help you find everything you need in our two brand new locations in Duluth and Cloquet. Stop in and see the friendly staff at Lake Superior Medical Equipment today. Have a question? Give them a call at 218-727-0600 or visit them online at lsmedequip.com. In the meantime, keep up with everything happening at Lake Superior Medical Equipment on social media. Just search for Lake Superior Medical Equipment on Instagram, Facebook, 
and LinkedIn. Okay, we are back with Don Ness. You're deciding that you're going to stay and you're going to try to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I knew that there was a, a city council uh, race coming up and, uh, you know, it was a, a very competitive first race and I was 25, but I looked like I was 15 and, <laughs> you know, and, and got a lot of pats on the head, you know, hey kid, we were glad that you're, you're running uh, and maybe, you know, someday in the future you can run and actually win. And, you know, we came in kind of a distant uh, third place in, in the primary, but I just kind of kept true to, you know, this idea that we wanted and needed kind of a fresh perspective on right. the council. And, and at the time, uh, there was, I think the youngest counselor was like 42 years old. And so there really wasn't kind of, you know, young people that had been serving on that. And we ended up uh, winning the uh, the general election and uh, I took office at, at the age of 25. Wow, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's amazing. And so you stayed on the, the, first of all, how did you like being on the city council? It was, uh, it was fascinating. Uh, and I had a lot to learn and you learn a lot of, you know, hard lessons. Um, I was oftentimes, it was a very split council at, at that time. I was often the swing vote and I try, I was a people pleaser, right. And I tried to kind of navigate and, and take votes that wouldn't, uh, you know, disappoint or upset, you know, my, my friends and, and right. you know, people that I, I work with. And ultimately you kind of see like, you know, your guiding star needs to be what's best for this community. Right. And so, and, you know, as long as you kind of stay true to that, that approach, will there be people that are upset with you? Absolutely. And that's right. part of politics and, and disagreement is part of politics. But um, so I learned a lot, you know, in those, uh, those eight years on the council. Wow. So you had eight years on the council and uh, you know, you were the campaign manager for Jim Oberstar. Mm -hmm. Oberstar. At some point, you also got involved in the Wellstone campaign. Well, so uh, at the Oberstar campaign, uh, we would kind of uh, host the other statewide campaigns uh, for, for office. And so in 2002, uh, Paul Wellstone was running uh, for uh, re-election. And um, there was a, a young woman who came up uh, to work on the Wellstone campaign uh, in my office. And I thought she was uh, the most wonderful and beautiful person that I had ever met. Uh, but we were co-workers. And so right. we kind of kept it at uh, at that. Um, and so 10 days before the uh, 2002 uh, election, we were so excited because uh, Paul was coming to town. And the very last debate between Paul Wellstone and Norm Coleman was to be uh, take place at St. Scholastica that night. And so we were just thrilled. And, you know, the campaign, there was momentum behind the Wellstone campaign and we were going to win this election and it was going to propel it. And we hadn't seen Paul for, for several months. And at noon, I got a call from uh, Bill Richard, who worked in our uh, DC office for Oberstar. And he said, something horrible has happened. Uh, a plane went down on the Iron Range. And we think that, that Paul and Sheila were on that flight. And I could not you know, believe what I was hearing. And so I had to go next door and there was about uh, five Wellstone staffers uh, in the office next to mine. And the, there was this kind of excited buzz in that room. And I had to come in and say, we think that Paul and Sheila's uh, plane uh, has gone down. And just like from there, the world just kind of spun out of control and, you know, national media all over the place. Right. And, you know, we um, nominated Walter Mondale to, right. you know, take Paul's yeah. uh, spot and end up, you know, losing that election. Norm Coleman, yeah. Yeah. 
And so it was right after kind of making that announcement and kind of the din of, of you know, just kind of the numbness of, of that moment that I gave, you know, Laura, uh, who was a Wellstone staffer, a hug. And uh, about a year and a half later, we were married. And, and uh, so that was kind of the start of our, uh, our relationship, you know, a tragic thing, uh, mm-hmm. but also something that, that brought us, you know, close yeah. together. Maybe if, if, if there was a silver lining to that tragic day, that that's was, right. that was, you probably found it anyway yeah that's uh that was just a uh that was that was a dark day my uh law, law partner and dear friend um lost a really good friend and neighbor on that flight mm. it was just uh it was just a, a tough a tough day that happens you get married you're on the council at some point you decide you might be mayoral material so how did that happen yeah so it was um 2007 and at that time laura and i had been married for uh, two and a half years, and we had uh, two babies, <laughs> essentially, yeah. uh, at that time, uh, bought our first house, and um, the incumbent mayor at that time, Herb Bergson, had indicated that he wasn't going to run, and, um, you know, Laura and I had a conversation of whether or not we wanted to do this and, and take this shot. I had to, in order to run, I had to leave my job uh, as Oberstar's campaign manager, so again, two babies in the house, uh, kind of a, a new mortgage no savings at all and uh, I had to leave my job in order to uh, to run and there were 12 of us that ran uh, in that uh, that primary including uh, the the incumbent Herb Bergson who kind of re-entered the race on the very last day of, of filing and after uh, telling you he wasn't exactly. kind of inviting you into yes oh, yep and, and that was I probably wouldn't have run against the incumbent because I just right. didn't want to have uh, have that race um, and uh, yeah it was uh, uh, it was a very difficult decision kind of because of of our life ex- experience, but I, w- I felt passionate about you know Duluth and about the needs of, of this community, and felt like I had something to offer. And uh, I don't think it's a spoiler at this point, but you wound up winning the election. Yes, and it was a very close election. I, w- I ran against uh, Charlie Bell, and I, I just had so much respect for Charlie. Uh, he was an institution uh, in in Duluth a long time. His family you know owned a funeral home in in Duluth, and you know they had been kind of well ingrained. And Charlie and I kind of had an understanding from the very beginning of like, we are running against one another. We are both running for this role, but we're not running against one another, you know? And so we will both put our best foot forward. We'll talk about our values and the things that we would like to accomplish and then let the voters decide. And I still really proud of that, that campaign and and how it turned out. And I think that's how democracy should work. Right. You know, you don't have to tear the other person down in order to support. What a a great lesson. If only they'd listen in Washington. (laughs) So you, you win, um, and uh, was this is it 2008? Is that January of 2008? January 2008, and you started mayor, and and there was a, a big issue that had to be dealt with, right? Involving, and we had an economy that was just starting a, a real steep downturn, and there was a big issue that you had to deal with that was sort of like closing a school that you mm-hmm. knew lots of people were going to wind up unhappy, and that had to do with the pension. Did Duluth have a defined pension program, and that hadn't been funded, which happened not only to cities across the country, but companies as well. Um, So talk a little bit about that, because I think that's an interesting challenge. I would say that my first year as mayor in 2008 was by far, no question, the worst year in my life. Uh, That it was, uh, you know, kind of taking office with all these ideas 
and uh, you know things that you want to accomplish. And then uh, we got hit by the the great financial crisis, uh, and uh, we had a you know we had a very small reserve, about a half million dollar reserve going into the year. Uh, and uh, about half in July of that year, the finance director came into the, my office and said, "We have bad news. Uh, we had uh, we purchased three million dollars of commercial paper, you know, with a three month uh, um, you know maturity, and just as a way to gain a little bit of interest right. uh, until um, you know to kind of put that money to work. Uh, we found that it was backed by subprime mortgages, oh, no. and that there was no value uh, to that. And meanwhile, so we had a six million dollar deficit, and my first year we had to lay off you know over a hundred uh, city oh. employees, and and then we were also uh, being faced with uh, essentially bankruptcy for the city of Duluth based on our retiree health care uh, benefit. Uh, the New York Times did a feature on Duluth saying this is an example of a city that if they don't get a, a, a handle on uh, on this problem, uh, this $300 million unfunded liability, the city will need to go bankrupt. And then also putting that that benefit uh, at risk. And so I ran on, on you know, that as one of the issues of saying, you know, we're not going to ask the retirees to do this on their own. You right. know, the, the people of Duluth has to come up. The city has to kind of find efficiencies within our administration. Um, and ultimately, the retirees, uh, you know, sued us in a class action lawsuit that went all the way to the Minnesota Supreme Court. But that was because of the the changes and the reforms that we were being able to put in place, and in, in part moving all retirees to the same uh, health care benefit uh, of that current employees were getting, which is still a very generous uh, plan, but it wasn't plan designed from 1983. Right. And so uh, today, uh, that uh, unfunded liability is somewhere in the range of 50 to 60 uh, million dollars uh, versus if we had not done anything, it would have grown from that 300 million to $450 million Whoa. by uh, in uh, by today. And so it would it would have kind of resulted in in a bankruptcy. And, and it's, it's one of the things that um, that I'm most proud of, because it was a very difficult uh, path. And there was no easy answers. And and yet it had to be done for, right. you know, the benefit of our community. And you got through that, you got through the worst year of your life, and things started to improve. I want to jump ahead a little bit, because I want us to, I want us to get to the Ordine Foundation. But I think this is so interesting. Your time as mayor. So things are going better. Economy's getting better. You run again in uh, what it must have been 2011. Mm-hmm. And things are going so well, you're not even <laughs> opposed, right? Right. I, I became the uh, the first mayor in Duluth history to run a, uh, unopposed or at least in the last hundred years. And, and uh, you know, we and I think it was gratifying because my approach was always that um, I'm just going to make the decision that's, that's best for our community and I didn't kind of shy away from how difficult it was on on us and how difficult it was for you know for the residents of Duluth and I think that kind of honest communication you know between elected officials and and you know the the residents is is really key and and um, so yeah it was a extraordinarily difficult time but I think if you kind of commit to an approach of, of being honest and forthright with with folks that you can kind of you know uh, folks will come along with you on, on that difficult ride 
right? Right. And so everything's going along really smoothly. Obviously, you're you're not oppo- you're unopposed. You win, and then we have a flood. Right. So, because <laughs> I think everyone who's in Duluth at that time remembers that flood. I wasn't in Duluth, but I remember the flood because right. it was national news. Yes. So, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was uh, it was a, a Tuesday night, and uh, I was downtown, and um, it was a very hard rain, and I had to kind of run from my car from uh, from Zeitgeist to to my car, and I got drenched. And uh, by that, well, going to bed on a very you know kind of uh, dark and, and stormy night, uh, and then I woke up. And uh, the next morning, and the town had been torn apart, and all of a sudden we were in the flood recovery uh, business, and uh, so it it was kind of you had to uh, set everything else aside and just say we're in an emergency, and our primary focus is you know people's safety, and right. we have to get you know word out. You know, don't travel on roads. Don't go around any barricades because you don't know, you know, what's under, uh, you know, those those roadbeds. But you know, we had uh, 10 inches of rain in in a 24-hour period, and uh, it just came, you know, crashing down the hillside and blew out, you know, the culverts and right. the, the infrastructure that was built, you know, 100 years ago right. in, in many cases. So yeah, it was a it was a devastating time. But I'm just so proud of our community and and the emergency response folks and and the recovery and and really was like a, a two or the three year uh, commitment to sure. really fully rebuild uh, uh, the community and address those that had been damaged. And how did you, how did Duluth fund that? Did it, I assume there was some state money, maybe some FEMA money too? Was, or? Yep. Yep. FEMA came in and supported uh, the state of Minnesota was, was, you know, very generous in, in rebuilding, but it was also Duluthians, neighbors helping neighbors, you right. know, and uh, folks going into, you know, the homes of seniors and pulling out, you know, all the damaged materials from their basement and a lot of, you know, the volunteer effort, I think was the thing that, that really, you know, spoke to kind of the resilience of Duluthians and, and the, their care for their neighbors. Well, it's, uh, it's another thing that Duluth got through. Another thing that you helped Duluth get through. Um, I don't think we had any uh, famines or, or locusts <laughs> hitting, but you, you went through a lot. Yeah. Um, you, you missed the pandemic. You're, that mm-hmm. was your predecessor, your uh, successor got to deal mm-hmm. with that. But okay, so you're, you've gotten through the flood. Um, you get through the rest of your term. Again, a very, very popular uh, mayor, maybe up toward uh, like 90% approval rating, mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere. But you decide you don't want to seek another term. Yeah, I think there was a few reasons for that. Um, I think first and foremost is kind of a recognition of um, of diminishing returns on the things that I was good at and that I was passionate about. And I really liked the problem solving and, and kind of the, the budget issues. Um, and so you kind of, you know, use the talent that you have. And then at a certain point, it's like, well, the things that I'm good at, we've kind of done those things. Right. But then the the things that are not a passion or, or that I didn't have a skill set to, to adequately address, those issues start to emerge and, and people start to get a little restless and, hey, we need to, to address those issues. So that was probably, you know, uh, the biggest reason of saying like it's it's time to pass the torch to right. somebody who will bring new energy and a fresh perspective and a different skill set uh, to the uh, to the table. And the second issue was my daughter was 11 years old, and you know knowing that it's it's difficult enough to be a teenager, right? And it's difficult enough to be a teenager in in social media at times, right? But then to have that extra layer of having your dad as mayor, and right. and so I thought you know what this is also a time for us to kind of step 
step aside and and focus on on the kids and and their experiences and not have to have them worry about what people were saying about right. uh, about their their dad. Right. All right. So we are shockingly getting a signal that we're running out yeah. of time. So I want to I want to jump ahead because you you uh, you leave the uh, the mayor's office and then you joined Ordine. Now how did that transpire? Yeah. Actually, you know, people assumed that when I said that I was not going to run that uh, we I had something lined up. Well, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> and we're kind of right back to square one of of saying like you know I didn't have a job to support my family and and um, so uh, I got a job for a short time working at Lake Superior College doing workforce development uh, work and then it was uh, about a year later um, a year after leaving office that the job with the Ordine Foundation came up and this was like my dream job right. uh, because I had so much respect for the Ordine Foundation the work that they do their focus on on issues related to poverty in in our community and I always thought you know that will never happen you know and the job came forward uh, I applied and, and got the job and it really is it's the fulfillment of everything that I would want in a in a job because it is community based it's focused on the issues of Duluth it's you know addressing and being being very clear-eyed about the problems that our our community is facing but then being in a position to work with our partners to try to solve those uh, those issues so well let's let's talk just briefly about yeah. its history its history because yeah. it's it's such an interesting history um, uh, starting out with Albert and his his wife so just you know it's gonna have sure. to be unfortunately the cliff note version, yes but the cliff notes is that uh, Albert and Louise uh, came to uh, to Duluth in the 1880s and and got into both the banking and grocery distributing business uh, at that time uh, became very prominent and at one point they were the second wealthiest uh, family in our region behind the Congdens uh, uh, but they didn't have any children. And so there was a, a question of when they were making their will, what do we do with this wealth? And it would have been easy for them to, you know, give to the Smithsonian or, or have some, you know, a big building in, 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 on the East coast named after them. But instead they said, you know, what's important to us? Albert lost his dad when he was a young man. Uh, and they struggled in, in poverty and said, uh, while we've been fortunate in business and we've, we've accumulated this wealth, we want to help those less fortunate. And so they dedicated, uh, the bulk of, of their fortune fortune to uh, the creation of this charity, the Ordine Foundation, and uh, the, that initial two, two and a half million dollar uh, donation has translated into over $75 million in grants and, and support for, for people living in poverty uh, in, in our community. Uh, and their charge to us was to uh, keep this, that this fund should exist in perpetuity. And right. so that is, as stewards of this fund, we want to make sure that we're making the, the biggest impact possible, helping as many people as, as we can, but also kind of protecting and enhancing that legacy for, for many generations to come. Right. And I, one of the things that I found uh, most remarkable is that when they made this, uh, formed this charity, it was specifically uh, without regard to race, gender, and uh, religion. And I thought, well, that's really forward thinking, uh, yes. given what was going on back in those times, early 30s, that's the right. depression. Um, you know, everyone was blaming everyone else for that depression. It's, I, I just thought that's 
that's really remarkable. I think it, it showed great foresight. And, and consider at the time that especially coming as soldiers came back from World War One, and so in the in the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan was very prominent nationwide, oh, sure. including right here in Duluth. There oh, were sure. prominent members of our community uh, that were members of the Klan, uh, and uh, and there was a, a strong anti-immigrant uh, sure. sentiment. And so for Albert and Louise to say like against kind of you know some of the pressures of the time, right. we n- want to make sure that this thing that we want to exist in perpetuity will have these values at its core. Well, it's fabulous. It's amazing what it's done. And I know that things changed a little bit because it used to be that uh, when it first started that individuals could go to the Ordean Foundation and, and, right. and, and get help in, as individuals. And that sort of shifted to realizing you probably do more good for more people if you actually uh, help fund other nonprofits that were, were doing that. That's right. Yeah. So it, it, uh, in the first 50 years of the of the organization, well, the first 40 years, uh, Ordean had a social worker on uh, on staff. And so people that, you know, uh, had unexpected medical bills or that, you know, had uh, faced a financial hardship of, of some uh, type would come to the Ordean Foundation, talk to a social worker, tell their story, and then they they could go home with a, a check, you know, to help uh, get them through uh, that uh, that stress. When the Great Society and the, you know, the war on poverty of the, the late 1960s, early 70s, you know, uh, came to fruition, then Ordean says, all right, that type of support is no longer necessary. We're going to, you know, give our support to organizations like Damiano and Chum and and the Boys and Girls Club and, and those sort of organizations. That's the model that we operate under today. So that's, uh, that's just a remarkable story. And uh, I think that the foundation is so lucky to have you. The city of Duluth is so lucky to have you as someone who's, who's stuck around and, and uh, really every day has been trying to make Duluth a, a better place to live. So we are we are just about out of time. One question we do like to ask here on this podcast is when you're not doing the things that got you onto this podcast, which is in your case is at this moment is the Ordean Foundation. What do you like to do in Duluth? I know you got uh, three kids, so you're 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 running those kids around, I'm sure. But what what else do you like to do? Well, you know, I have been listening to many of these episodes. I love hearing uh, the answers to this question. And so unlike most people, you know, I really dislike hiking you know, and, and craft beer and live music. All that stuff is, you know, way down the list. Uh, no, but it's, it really is. I, I, I like, um, I call it urban wandering. And so I put in my podcast and listen to For the Love of Duluth and, and uh, walk around. And I like to just kind of, you know, witness what's going on. You know, what's happening in, in our neighborhoods? You know, what is the condition of the streets? Is there a sewer that's kind of, you know, blocked up? And, you know, sometimes we'll make a call uh, down to City Hall and say, you should send a crew up here. But just, I, I love to kind of see with fresh eyes you know, the kind of the the ever-evolving nature of, of a community. And there's something about kind of wandering aimlessly through neighborhoods right. uh, that you just learn so much about how a city functions. And so that's my favorite thing. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Well, I assume you get asked this all a, a lot, but any any thoughts about ever venturing into politics again? I don't think so. You know, uh, I love my time, uh, especially serving, you know, the city of Duluth. And, and that was my, my passion. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, the, the nature of politics has has kind of gone uh, away from uh, the the type of politics that I like to, to practice. Folks are a little bit more interested in kind of the partisan warrior sort of approach, and and I was more of a problem solver right. and kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of things. But you know the the pendulum swings on on those, and so I, I am hopeful that that you know that pendulum will swing and people will want a different type of elected uh, leadership uh, in the future. But I think my role will be in support and mentoring you know those folks in the same way that Jim Ober 
Superstar and Sam Solon and, right. and Tom Huntley and so many other uh, right. folks, Yvonne Pretner Solon, you know, were mentors to me and supported me through through that journey. I think that will be my role going forward. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, we'll uh, we'll, we'll follow uh, your uh, your future career and uh, wish you the best of luck in the future. And uh, thank you so much for being on uh, on our podcast today. Well, thank you guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Love of Duluth. Season 1, 2, and 3 are available now wherever you get your podcasts. All you have to do is search for For the Love of Duluth. Have a minute to spare? Leave a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We hope you are loving Season 4 so far. We'll see you next time for another brand new episode of For the Love of Duluth.